Hey, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this evening, is Genesis chapter 1. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, that's all right. It's the uh, very first book in the Bible, so it's pretty easy to find. Genesis chapter 1. Well, as uh, Bria mentioned, we are in a brand new series, and this is a series that I, we've been planning, we've been thinking about for the past few months, and uh, we're calling this series Abundant Valley, Abundant Valley. The goal of this series is to simply start thinking differently about the material that we have in our lives and the vocations that God has given us. I want us to think differently about material about physical things in our lives. I want us to get a good theology of enjoyment, a good theology of generosity through this series. But I also want us to start thinking about vocation, especially for some of you who are younger in the church. I know a lot of our, we had like 40 Fox students last week that were like, I'm not gonna be here over the summer. I'm like, right when we start the vocation series. That's okay. Next, next year, we'll, we'll line that up a little bit better. But for anybody who's trying to figure out like, what is a, the, a theology around my work? What's a theology around my vocation? How do I start? the abundance that God has given me. That's some of the things that we're going to be addressing in this series. Now, uh, last week, how many of you were here last week for Jamie Winship's message? That was awesome. That was just so good. Jamie Winship, uh, just a, a voice who's spoken into my life and certainly is now a voice speaking into our church, um, chatted with us a little bit about these two words he felt like were for our church, pioneers and pijager. You guys remember that? Pijager. It's a French word for pressing down. It's a French word for, for when, when wine, um, when you're making wine, it's very appropriate for this area. When you're making wine, um, at the top, if you just leave it in the cask, at the top of the cask, it can develop uh, this, like kind of the seeds, the stems, the leaves, the skins, can form almost this kind of hard barrier. And the way that you release fruit and tannins and structure to the wine is you break it, you break through that top structure, you press it down so that the wine would be all the more flavorful. And he felt like those were two words for us as a church, that we would be pioneers. Pioneers, they're not afraid to die. We have resurrection on our side. We don't have to worry what people think about us. We don't have to worry about how it, how it looks when we're pursuing the kingdom. We're pioneers. But also, pijager. Press us down, Lord. Release the fruit that you would have for us. Um, which I, I think his message last week is such a good foundation for where I want to go this evening. I want to talk to you about work this evening specifically. Um, kind of a 30,000 foot view of a biblical theology of work. Now, um, if there was one theme of this entire series, it would be gratitude. It would be thankfulness. Uh, so here's what I want to do because I know it's hot in here. We just turned the AC on. Just bear with us. Uh, I didn't even know we had AC. There's AC over there. I turned it on. Um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of three things in your mind right now that you're thankful for. Just take a moment. It can be so, it can be silly things. It's like, I'm really thankful, God, that I got that deal on Amazon on those Chuck Taylors. It can be that, or it could be like, God, I'm so grateful for my kids, or, or whatever it is. Just think of three things that you are grateful for right now. It doesn't matter what it is, just three things that you're grateful for. Okay, once you have those three things, turn to your neighbor, and I want you to tell them the three things. What are the three things? Just turn to them and just say, here's my three things.
it's just good to start with gratitude. Isn't that good? Maybe we just start every gathering. It's just like, hey, you know what? Rather than living in want, we don't have no want. We are so grateful for what we have. Hopefully, you guys are sharing some good things. Um, how many of you guys, when you're driving down into Newburgh, either coming down Rex Hill or you're coming down uh, into the mountains over here, you're driving down into Newburgh, you've had the thought, I just can't believe I get to live here. Like, I, I feel that all the time. My wife and I were driving around this weekend, and we are just looking into the valley. We were like, what? This is crazy. Here's some things that I love about Newburgh. Um, Newburgh is close to a big city, but it feels like its own entire world. It's a, we can get anywhere, like in 30, 35 minutes, 40 minutes. Um, Newburgh is on the Willamette River. It's, it's something that I think Newburgh is going to try to work on, getting more accessible and putting shops and condos right down on the river. My wife and I live just a few blocks from the Willamette River, and so we're excited about that. We just ran down to the river yesterday. It's just beautiful. Um, we live in a... Uh, walk it's a it's a walkable town I like to say that Newburgh is like the last walkable suburb it's like all other suburbs they're just messes somehow Newburgh has this town center where if you live in it you can walk everywhere we live like r just six blocks up from first street and so we can just you know walk to coffee shops to restaurants to bars whatever it is it's phenomenal um, it's a small town with a global impact through the wine industry I don't know how many of you guys realize this, but my wife and I love wine. My wife works at a winery. Um, Newburgh is like on the map. Like LeBron James is like, I'm going to Newburgh this summer for wine. So I don't know if how many of you guys realize that, but people travel here just to have our wine. It's crazy. Um, I actually believe that the wine industry is just the front runner. I believe it's prophetic. There will be many businesses that start here in Newburgh that have global impact. Their impact is way larger than what you would think. You're like, wait a second, New out of Newburgh, really? Holy cow. And look at the impact that they're having around the world. Um, Newburgh is beautiful. Uh, the coastal range, the hills surrounding us just create this like bowl of vegetation. It's just like the greenest place on earth, I think. Um, and, by, and our food is the best. It's just the best. Like, I don't know how many of you guys get out and, like, try different f restaurants around here. When I, when I was first, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. When I first, the Lord's like, you're going to Newburgh. I'm like, the food is great. I'm okay, Lord. Thank you. And I remember I was talking to different pastors in the area. I was like, oh, you guys have the best restaurants. And they're like, what? Sherwood's the one with Red Robin. I'm like, whoa, hang on a second. Whoa. Okay, we might have a different definition of good food. So uh, there are amazing French and Italian restaurants all over the place. Please get out there and try them. They're just amazing. And, you know, I'm not alone in my love of this area. When people were moving out west, the valley was widely publicized in the 1820s as the promised land of flowing milk and honey. So like in the east, they're like, you need to go to the Willamette Valley. It's the promised land. of It's flowing with milk and honey. We live in an abundant valley. We really do. What is our response to that reality? Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Let's read it. It says this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. I just love that. What is it? God makes humans, and what's his first thing? He's like, I want to bless these people. He blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. 
And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning on the sixth day. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles all the way to the last book, Revelation. Turn all the way to the right. Revelation chapter 21 is where we're going to read. Revelation gives us this depiction of the trajectory of where our earth, where our valley, where our world is going. It says this, Revelation 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven. This isn't a vision that John has. A new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Pause right there. Uh, The sea was known as a chaotic, it was a chaotic, uncontrollable thing in the ancient mind. And so to any Israelite who was reading this, any Hebrew or first century person, they would have been like, oh, thank God. (laughs) Verse two, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything New. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. I just love this imagery from the book of Revelation. It's just powerful stuff to think about. What is the trajectory of the whole earth and cosmos? I remember when I first read this passage, I was probably about 17 or 18 years old, and I was relieved. I remember I read this and I thought, man, harps and clouds and singing forever seemed like a downgrade. I love life. Like, I, 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 love, I love culture, I love the city, and so re- when I finally got a biblical theology of what's to come, I thought, oh, I'm so grateful. I'm not just going to be sitting around on some cloud singing forever. I'm going to be existing in, in a renewed world, a renewed earth. What an incredible thing. I just love that image, a new city and a renewed place. How many of you have ever been traveling before, and you've ended up in a big city, and you've just wondered, why this place? Like, why not 40 miles that way or 10 miles that way? Why did this place boom? Why did this place explode with growth? Well, one of the main reasons for a place booming historically is that it has been close to water. The closer to water that a town was or that a city was, the more trade they could do, and the more trade, the more exports and imports they could do with ease, the place could do commerce and thus flourish. There would be more income coming into that place to build bigger buildings and invite more jobs and and all of the like. And what's fascinating about that very physical reality, that truth just all across the world down through history, is that I believe that is to be a symbol for how God intends to prosper a place. God intends to prosper a place through water. Here's what I mean. Now, I've talked a little bit about Ezekiel's river in the past, but I'm just so inspired by this vision. I think we have a little picture uh, that's kind of depicting what Ezekiel sees when he sees the temple. Um, Essentially, in chapter 47 of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet is shown how God renews the world. And what, in this vision that he gets, there's this water leak (laughs) 
a main breaks or something in the, the most holy place, and it begins to leak water out of the temple. And as the water goes out of the temple, it gathers and gathers and gathers, and it becomes this river. And God's like, take a look at this river. Isn't that just amazing? And so he's, he's looking at this river, and it's fresh water. And the first thing that Ezekiel sees is that this fresh water enters into the Dead Sea, and it makes the Dead Sea fresh rather than salty. So that's interesting. Rather than the fresh water getting contaminated, it, because it's coming from the temple, has this ability to whatever it touches, it sanctifies. Not only that, but he sees there's these trees on either side of this river that are beginning to grow. And it says that these trees are, they're growing these leaves, uh, these medicinal leaves that um, are beginning to heal different people all over the world, just the, the, the fruit of this river. And, and then he sees there's a, a large amount of fish, the, the rivers are just teeming with fish. And he says, it says in, the, in uh, uh, Ezekiel 47, every single month these trees produce fruit. So they're not on a typical seasonal cycle. Because of the river, they produce fruit every month. Really just an amazing passage. Go read it sometime, uh, Ezekiel 47. But here's the first principle of this series. What flows from the presence of God causes fruitfulness. What comes from the presence causes fruitfulness. In Genesis chapter one, we learn this through creation, that God, he speaks from his presence, a very fruitful and abundant world comes to be. And then in Ezekiel, we see that God's continued intention for the whole world, for all, for all the way to the end of the age, is that he would see fruitfulness spring up from whatever flows out of his presence. Now, the reason why we need to kind of do that theology, why we need to understand that is this. The trajectory of our world is not from Eden to hell in a handbasket. The trajectory of our world is from a garden to a garden. From a garden to a garden. Just like we read in Revelation 21, look down your Bibles, verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. The trajectory of the world because of the resurrection is renewal. Now, this word for new in Revelation 21, verse 5 is kainos. Can you say that with me? Kainos. And uh, kainos means to renew. Almost like it has this connotation of like a remodel of an old home or restoring an old motorcycle. Wives, watch out. Don't let your husbands do that. Um, and, and like when you do that, when you remodel the home, when you remodel the car, when you, when, you, when you put new parts into these old things, what do you say? It's just like new. It's just like new. And that's what's being said here. I am remodeling the world. God isn't interested in burning this earth down and starting over. He's in the process of cleaning the grime, stripping it down to the studs, and making it new in tandem with humanity like he intended from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. And this remodel that God is in the process of bringing looks a lot like Eden. Just the next chapter over, Revelation 22 says this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, Flowing from the throne of God on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. His people will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. 
Does this sound familiar at all to you? It's almost like God read Ezekiel or something. He's like, I have this great idea from Ezekiel 47. I just got to share this with you again. Water from the throne, fruitfulness every month, his name being honest. The tree of life from Eden makes an appearance in there as well. Now, what does this mean? It means that the trajectory of the earth is from a garden back to a renewed and good garden. And the pertinent news, you're like, why does this matter? Well, here's why it matters. The pertinent news for us this evening is that we have a role to play in this process, and it has to do with your work. It has to do with your work. We need to get a theology of work. And every creation myth, ancient creation myth, whether it's Pandora and Pandora's box, or whether it's the Babylonian creation myth where Marduk tears up Tiamat's body and creates the world out of it, work is for lowly beings. Work is something to be despised. It's not something that anybody enjoys in every other creation myth. Here's the basic premise of most of those creation myths. God, the gods make a world. They didn't realize how much work it would actually take to keep it up. Just think like anytime you buy houseplants, you're like, I got 10 new houseplants in like a couple months. It's like, I have no houseplants. They're all dead. Um, so the gods make this world, they're like, oh my gosh, this is going to take so much work to keep this thing in order, and so they make humans as slaves to take care of it. Think about that narrative versus the biblical narrative. The Bible is the only story where because of your dignity, you are rewarded with work. You are rewarded with work. Work doesn't come from Genesis chapter 3, it comes in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, rule, in other words, steward the creation. What we read in Genesis 1 verse 27 is that we are made in the image of God, and this is the hallmark statement in all of human history. There's really never been a greater statement ever given to humanity than this. You've been made and designed in the image of God, but what exactly does it mean? What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, the word for image in Hebrew is the same word for idol, ironically, that's salem. Salem. So are we God's idols? Like He's like, I'm going to make some idols of me in this garden. Like, what, really? Well, yes, we are God's idols, and no, probably not in the way that you're thinking. We're not idols in the sense that we get worshipped by some people or something like that, but we are idols in the sense that we are a physical representation for all of the dignity, the power, and the ability that is our creator God. That's what it means. The Imago Dei, or the image of God, has really three components to it. It has dignity. Next slide. It has dignity. It has responsibility and capacity within that phrase, Imago Dei, within that phrase, image of God. Now, I think for the most part, we're sitting here tonight, and we're like, okay, yeah, I get the dignity idea. Um, for the most part, all of Western civilization and all of Western morality is built on this premise that every human being uh, is endowed with value and worth, their reflection of the creator. Whether you're secular or not, you still have this belief. Um, but responsibility and capacity, I don't really think we touch on that often. With the position of the dignity that we're given comes responsibility. We're to care for creation. We're to steward what God has made. Creation isn't made for us. It's made for him. And so we're to increase and flourish what God has given us. It is not holy to neglect material. 
It is not holy to say, oh, I'm not one of those materialists. That's fine, but you're still called to steward it. You're still called to increase it. You're still called to see it flourish. But then also, not only do we have responsibility, we have capacity. We have the ability to actually do the stewarding that the scripture talks about. Here's what John Walton, just a preeminent Genesis scholar, has to say about this. The image, or the imago Dei, is a physical manifestation of divine or royal essence that bears the function of that which it represents. This gives the image bearer the capacity to reflect the attributes of God. Tonight, do you realize you have the capacity to adequately reflect God? That's amazing. Many would prefer in our culture to simply focus on the dignity side of the Imago Dei because we're afraid of anything that would give us uh, dignity but then also require anything of us as well. But there is no dignity without responsibility or capacity. John Walton, again, he has this to say, while a baby may be affirmed to be in the image of their father, few can recognize that image. Have you ever just like, they're like, oh my God, they look so much like their dad. And you're like, they look like just a, a little blob. They don't look like anybody. That's me every time. I'm like, babies are ugly. I'm sorry, I don't love, like when they're two, I'm like, you're cool with me. But babies, it's like, they look like nobody. That's me. I don't know, I don't know what you look like. You look like a baby. But the image grows as the child matures. As a child grows up, you're like, oh, they have this trait and they have that trait. And the way that you said that, that's just like your father. We likewise have the capacity to become more and more in the image of God as we increase in our responsibility and our capacity. And Genesis actually describes this responsibility and capacity in chapter two. When describing the garden, the author of Genesis has this to say. Next slide. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Just a quick note. Uh, Aromatic resin, any essential oil fans in the house? And onyx are also there. Not a bad spot to hang out if you ask me. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds throughout the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Ashur. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Why is this in there? Why is this in Genesis? Why should we care where the gold is or the onyx or any of that stuff? It sounds like a Pokemon card collection. It's like, I got onyx, you have the gold edition. Um, what God is saying is this. In this garden, in this world, there's raw material. There's valuable raw material. So go make something with it. Go make something with it. There's all this raw material, so create a culture. Do something. In theology, this is called the cultural mandate. Take what God has made and do something with it. 
Genesis 1 verse 2 says this, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now we read this and we go, yeah, I've heard that a million times, but certainly in the Hebrew mind, they they would have read this and they would have thought, that is not safe, don't go there, nothing good can come from that, this is chaos. There's darkness, there's water, there's a deep, yikes, I want nothing to do with that. But in the next 25 verses, what we learn in, in chapter one is that they prove the different story, that God creates a temple-like space for his idols to live in, but then also to expand. Why is there raw material? So that humans would expand Eden, not just keep Eden the way that it is. Think about it. I, I've heard this many times, Eden is perfect. Eden is not perfect. God did not just go, God could have just said, boom, there it is, just enjoy it. He doesn't do that. He says, here's a bunch of raw material. Part of your dignity is reflecting my capacity. Do something with it. What a glory. Co-ruling with God. Co-creating with God. That's what work is supposed to be. But I think that many of us, we have a few problems with work, don't we? Maybe you've had this experience. When I was uh, 17 years old, I started working at Bullwinkle's Family Fun Center. <laughs> I've never talked so much about Bullwinkle's in my life than when I planted this church. I know the Lord's just like, he's using it. And my job at Bullwinkle's was the go-kart attendant. So I would spend seven, eight hours a day, ten hours a day, basically telling people to buckle their seatbelts, not to bump people, and to, like, you know, stay on the track, don't go backwards, that sort of a thing. And then I would spend the other parts of the day standing, getting beaten by the sun, essentially, and getting people, kids unstuck from running into the walls. And, and, And after my shift, I'd sit in my car... And I would think, did I just expand Eden? (laughs) Questionable at best, right? The philosopher Karl Marx would say that what is wrong with that image is that I don't have a job that adequately and fully releases and expresses me as an individual. That I need a job that just gives me more meaning. There's more of me in the job. You hear this complaint pretty frequently in an individual-centric society. I was working there, but it just didn't bring out all that I am. That's fine. But I think that the real problem is that many fail to see how their job reflects not their identity, but his identity. Because we tend to think of God as just interested in evangelism and a vision of escaping this world rather than partnering with us to remake it. We, we, we tend to, to think of, of our jobs as just like, well, he has nothing to do with this. He doesn't care about this. So the question has to become for each and every one of us this evening, when you think about your job, how does your job reflect his desire for fun, enjoyment, for goodness, for health, for all people, for justice? For some of us, uh, this is pretty difficult. Regardless of age or socioeconomic status, many of us wrestle with this dilemma. How does my job have anything to do with the kingdom? Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, was the primary theologian to uh, first get a theology of work into the church. And he was famous for recognizing this. This was his phrase. The milkmaid had no less of a calling than the priest or the king. The milkmaid had no less of a calling than the priest or the king. How, how, is, how is that? Well, his reasoning was this. 
that he could see how God used all types of work to sustain and flourish his creation. Tim Keller, uh, just one of my heroes, one of my mentors from afar, he, he explains it like this. He says, if you don't clean your house and you go long enough without cleaning your house, eventually you're going to die. Eventually, right? <laughs> uh, somebody has to clean that house of yours, right? Um, and so somebody's going to do that work to clean it. Either you're going to clean it, you're going to do that work, or somebody else is going to do that work, and they're going to clean it so that you can live, you can stay alive. That's a good thing. Either way, it was work that led to the sustaining of life through cleanliness. And this is a vision, this kind of vision has to be applied to software, to small businesses, to wine, to social work, to teaching, to sales, to working at a restaurant, how can I, can I look and can I see, okay, what are God's intentions in the beginning? They're for enjoyment, they're for expansion, they're for goodness, they're for justice. Can I look at my job and can I find a way in which I see my job contributing to and benefiting technology, flourishing of humanity, all of that? Can I see how God is using this good or service to flourish others? So really ask yourself this question right now. Am I playing a role in expanding Eden? Am I play, even if it seems like, oh, just such a small role, but, but he didn't say that only the people who are gonna matter when I create this world are the ones who do the things that make the most sense. No, he said, I want everybody to rule and to reign with me. It's our submission to his mission that releases an authority to see heaven come in every single job and every single circumstance. Work is difficult um, when we can't see an answer to this question in what we do. But our second issue with work is not just that one. It's that work is hard. You guys ever noticed that? Work's hard. Thorns and thistles, right? Work is difficult, whether it's relational conflict with a coworker or whether it's submission to a boss that you just don't get their vision. Um, maybe it's just the stress and the mental toll or the physical toll of trying to eke out a living, um, trying to pay bills. There is a toll to work, right? There's a toll on the body and the mind of work. But do you know what's even more difficult than the daily struggle of tilling ground? It's using work to create an identity, it's the struggle of trying to use work to create an identity. You guys remember the story of the Tower of Babel? I don't know why I never saw this, but I saw this this week. You guys remember that story? Um, the, the whole story is about work. All of Genesis chapter 11 is about work. A bunch of people get together, they work really hard to build something really great, something so large and so impressive that it makes a name for themselves. They're like, we're going to gr grab these stones and these stones and we're going to build such a tower that even the gods can't ignore us. We'll make a name for ourselves, right? Now, um, what's fascinating about this story is that this is the first time in human history where humans define for themselves what the purpose of work should be. Isn't that interesting? They pick their reason for work rather than receiving their reason for work from God. The purpose for the work of Babel was to get some level of notoriety so that other people would be impressed or scared into submission. And I would argue that in a sense, this is exactly what work has become for many today. A way of producing returns corporately or wealth personally to prove that I'm worth something I'm making a name for myself. I'm worth something. We live in a super prosperous and free society and praise God for that, but many, because of that, had fallen for this trap. 
It's a trap because what this does is it ties your value personally with your work. So the more you produce, the better you feel about yourself. The better you, the, the more you kill it, oh, they're just out there killing it, right? The more value you have as an individual. The more notoriety that you get, the more you feel like, hey, I'm actually worth something. People know my name. I was just watching, because uh, the NBA Finals are on, and I was watching the Warriors game after the Warriors game, Kevin Durant's being interviewed about some kind of no-name guy on the other team, and, you know, this guy was being a little bit of a pest, fouling him, and just being annoying all game long. And uh, they, asked, they asked Kevin Durant about it. They're like, hey, so, you know, what do you think about this guy? And he's like, that guy? He's like, he just knows I'm Kevin Durant. I got a name for myself. I got a name for myself. I've, I've done enough things to produce notoriety, and that's where my value and my worth is going. Now, I don't know if that's where Kevin's worth or value is. I, I know he follows Jesus, so I'm not trying to put that on him. But I think that for many people, they work very hard to get a name. Social media is really uh, the pinnacle of this. Uh, with, without the thin veil of do-getterism, it's just self-promotion in order to feel value. It's like, I just want to feel value. It's like just, we, we even like monetize the value in likes and comments. It's like, I just want to feel value. Can you, can you give me some value? Have you ever been there? I'm just going to be very honest with you. This is the temptation for someone with a job like mine. Uh, the more that I can see impact in people's lives, the better that I feel about myself. It just happens so frequently, and the Lord is constantly bringing it to mind, saying, you've got to let it go, you've got to let it go. People who teach or have a public platform constantly have to do the work of humbling themselves and finding their identity in the correct place. That's like 90% of my life. The danger of this is that uh, when you live this way, when you, when you work for an identity, is, is one, that your job is not big enough to handle your whole identity. What if you lose the job? What if your performance takes a downturn? And you're like, I don't know what's going on. What, what if people don't want what you're offering anymore? Then who are you? Does it change who you are? But I think secondly, it's going to exhaust you. When you're working to make a name for yourself, you start every day with a deficit. I need to do something good today in order to be good. I, you will find yourself constantly tired or constantly compromising your convictions in order to get the advancement that you need in order to be okay. You're like, unless I get that accolade, unless I do that thing, I'm not okay. Give me an identity. This is work for a name. This is the curse of Babel. Now, what, what if I told you you could have a fulfilling job, expanding Eden, and you could do it from a place of security? Wouldn't that be great? Well, uh, remember Revelation 22. Here, here's what it says, and, and now you'll read this with fresh eyes. Next slide. It's going to come in three, two. Is it not there? All right, we're just going to turn over there. Still not there? Okay. Revelation 22, uh, verse 3 says this. Fortunately, I was close. It says, oh, is it there? Oh, there it is. Okay, hey, we'll all read it together. It says this. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. His name you don't need to work for a name, you already have one. This is the promise of Jesus. Next slide, John 7. 
On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You were not intended to live life from a deficit in which you're constantly trying to make up your identity, make up your worth, make up your value by doing good things in the world. You were intended to work from victory. We have Revelation 22 and 21 right in front of us. We know the trajectory. We are working from a place where we know he's renewing the world. He's inviting us to win. He's inviting us to win. He's saying, let me put my name on you. What's his name? It's his character. It's his capacity. It's his responsibility. Let me put my name on you, and when you carry that name, here's what you're going to do. You're going to renew the world like I would renew the world because you're my idol. You're my idol. You're my physical representation of me. Do you wake up in the morning and do you let this sit on your heart? Do you wake up in the morning and do you go, I'm God's idol, his physical representation. I'm going to walk through my life and from a place of victory, from a place of having my name already settled so that everything I touch begins to look like Eden. Or do you wake up in the morning and do you go, I hope they like me. I just, I'm so stressed out. I have to do this. Because if I don't, I'm going to let people down. Oh, so you're still finding your worth and value and not letting people down, are you? Rather than receiving the name that he's given you, the Imago Dei. This is the model of overflow that we've been given. God wants to partner with you for the renewing of his entire world. And he wants you to be able to do it from his surplus rather than your personal deficit. If you're feeling drained by work, it's time to look at why you do what you do and from what mindset you work from. Why do you do what you do? You ever ask yourself that question? Some of us who've been in jobs for a long time, we're like, wow, you know, I I guess it just, it was working, (laughs) you know? I I used to be excited about this, but am I contributing to expanding Eden? I need to think about that. Overflow can only come from knowing your source of abundance and allowing him to fill you up before you do anything worth being filled up for. After all, this is how Jesus worked here on earth, Matthew 3, 17. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. Before Jesus did a single thing but be a carpenter, God said, Here's your identity, you're my Son, and here's your worth. I love you, and I'm pleased with you. That same position is offered to each and every one of us this evening. So do you work from that place? Do you work from a place of knowing that you are completely approved of, completely loved, before you do a single thing? Let's stand together and end.